God, our Father, Lord, we praise you and we honor you today. We've gathered to worship you, to give you glory and honor, to lift up the name of your son, Jesus, who is our God and King, who has redeemed us from sin and from death. Oh, Lord, we thank you for all that you have done for us in him. And we do glorify you today for his precious blood. Oh, Lord, uh, today as we look into your word and we focus on the second coming of Christ, I pray that you would open up our eyes to see how clearly you have taught about these things in your word. And God, I pray that we would use the Bible itself, the text of scripture to define our understanding of the second coming and the end times and the the uh, the consummation of the ages as you have recorded it for us. And Lord, I pray that we would be encouraged today by the things we read, that we would indeed be able to encourage one another with these things, that God, we would look eagerly to your coming, that you might come and take us to be where you are. We, we thank you for such a blessed hope, and we pray Lord Jesus, that you would come quickly. We honor you and we praise you. Amen. Okay. So we are on our handout on page 47. And um, about halfway down, that's where we left off last week. And... Uh, Last week, we began talking about uh, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 15, where it says, For this we say to you by the word of the Lord, that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. And so there we talked about the fact that Paul now in these verses, really verses 15 through 17, brings up something that is really just a monumental statement. It is a statement of huge magnitude where he actually talks about the second coming of Christ in in vivid detail. And, um, of course, I made the point last week that I believe that Paul is actually referring to something that is recorded in the Gospels, particularly in the Olivet Discourse. And the closest thing that I see in the Olivet Discourse to what Paul has said in verses 15 through 17 is Mark chapter 13, verse 27, if you will, verses 24 through 27. At the bottom of your handout on page 46, Mark 13, 24 through 27 reads like this, but in those days after that tribulation, The sun will be darkened and the moon will not give its light and the stars will be falling from heaven and the powers that are in the heavens will be shaken. And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with power, with great power and glory. And then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. One of the reasons why I think this is the most accurate verse in the Olivet Discourse that coincides with Paul's statement in 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17 is because of the words in verse 27 that say this, 
He will gather together his elect from the four winds, from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. When you think about what Mark has recorded there as the saying of Jesus, consider what must happen for Jesus to gather his elect from the farthest end of earth to the farthest end of heaven. So it is clear to me from that that Jesus is implying that there is a resurrection that takes place. And uh, that is because gathering his elect from heaven would mean to do what? To, to gather those dead saints who are in Christ, who are already in the presence of God in heaven. Amen? And so if you will, uh, Paul is not quoting verbatim every single word that Jesus said. However, the concept that he speaks about at the parousia, the second coming of Christ, is something very closely related to something Jesus said in the Olivet Discourse. So, so it is my position when Paul says, according to the Lord's own word in the NIV or in the NASV, for this we say to you by the word of the Lord, he's actually quoting uh, right from the recorded sayings of Jesus. Um, and of course, the text of Mark would have been something that uh, Paul already had access to by the time he wrote this letter in 1 Thessalonians. Um, so moving on from there, of course, if you're interested in hearing more about that, that's what we went over last week in large degree. Um, <clears throat> one other thing I'd point out is this the text in Matthew 24, verses 29 through 31, which really is just another recording of the Olivet Discourse, includes there um, that he's coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory, and he will send forth his angels with a great trumpet. Now, the trumpet is not something that's mentioned in the text in Mark. However, it is mentioned in the text in Matthew. And, uh, of course, if you were looking at the chart that I provided you, it shows the similarities between the passage in Matthew and the passage in um, 1 Thessalonians. You can see all the similarities of the two passages there. So um, the one thing I wanted to kind of add this morning that I didn't really make clear was that verse at the end of Mark that actually says that he will gather his elect from the farthest end of the earth, which implies living people, right, to the farthest end of heaven, which implies those who are already in the presence of the Lord. Okay? So uh, moving on from there, then... We pick up where we left off last week, which is about midway down on page 47. And he goes on there in verse 15, and he says that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This statement by Paul actually continues into verse 16 and 17, where Paul further clarifies his meaning. It is clear from this verse, however, that Paul expects that the Lord to return it during his lifetime or at the very least expects living believers to live in light of that expectation. This is clear from the words that we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. 
This clearly shows that the Lord is coming and that there will be those who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. But Paul's main point in this verse is to show that the believers who have fallen asleep in Jesus, verse 14, are going to precede those who are alive and remain. The meaning here is that they who would be alive at the coming of the Lord Jesus would not be changed and received up into glory before those who were in their graves were raised up. This is his design in the words, will not precede those who have fallen asleep. This point is very clear, therefore. That is, at the second coming of Christ, he will gather together his elect, and there will be a resurrection of dead believers which will precede the translation of living believers into the air to meet Christ when he comes, This is also clear from other passages. So, for example, John 11, 25, Jesus said to Martha there, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me shall live even if he dies. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And so Jesus taught that there would be a resurrection for everyone who believed in him. And he said, if you will, that everyone who lives and believes in him would never die. If you will, that's consistent with Paul's idea that those dead Christians were actually just what? Fallen asleep. Interesting terms that he uses to speak of of, uh, believers who have perished from this life. He says they've fallen asleep. 1 Corinthians 6.14, Now God has not only raised the Lord, but will also raise us up through his power. So not only did God raise Jesus from the dead, but he'll do what? Raise us also, right? So if you will, the idea of resurrection for Christians is corresponds to what happened to Jesus, right? So in the same way God raised up Jesus, he will raise us also. Amen? Amen. Romans 8.11 But if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who indwells you. And there again, the idea that even though we live in a mortal body, what? God is going to give us life. He's going to quicken it. He's going to make it immortal we learn from other passages of Scripture. Amen? But here the idea is is that even in the same way that Jesus was raised from the dead, so also those who are in Christ will also be raised from the dead. 1 Corinthians 15, verses uh, 51 and 52. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. So what's Paul saying when he says, we shall not all sleep? Not every single Christian is going to see mortal death. Are you with me? It's kind of a double positive, mortal death. (laughs) Sorry. I'm not sure what you call that, Carol. But... (laughs) But not, not all Christians are going to uh, have their mortality fulfilled. But there will be some Christians who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord. Right? And they shall be what? 
Arpazo. Rapio. Or in the English, caught up to meet the Lord in the air. Okay? Translated. Transformed. Okay? There is a group of Christians who at the coming of the Lord will be alive and will not die, yet be transformed into their immortal bodies. That's Paul's point in 1 Thessalonians 4. 15, we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord will not precede those who have fallen asleep, right? But verse 16 and 17, the dead in Christ will rise first, and then what? We who are alive and remain will be caught up to meet the Lord in the air. So shall we be with the Lord forever. Amen? Amen. 2 Corinthians 4.14, knowing that he who raised the Lord Jesus will raise us also with Jesus and will present us with you. What's Paul saying? That God is going to raise us, just like he raised up Christ, and present us with Paul and Jesus. Amen? It's a gathering of God's elect from all ages. It's a gathering of all of God's people, which is the reason for the trumpet. The trumpet is a call to gather God's people. Mark 13, 26 and following, And then they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth his angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. He goes on, chapter 4, verse 16 and following, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air, and so shall we always be with the Lord. Therefore, comfort one another with these words. He says, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Now, Paul begins to describe the parousia, or coming of the Lord, he mentioned in, ver- in verse one, chapter 1, verse 10, chapter 2, verse 19, chapter 3, verse 13, and in the preceding verse, chapter 4, verse 15, as the term for connotes. So when he says, for the Lord himself will descend from heaven, right? He's referring back to verse 15 where he said that we who are alive and remain until what? The coming of the Lord. The parousia. The, the Greek word for coming is parousia. Okay, this thing that Paul keeps bringing up through the course of this letter. We're waiting for his son from heaven. Right? Um, <clears throat> or he makes reference to the coming of the Lord several times. And so he's mentioning this coming. The Lord is coming. This was a concept in Jesus' teaching. He said the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with great power and all his angels, and he will recompense every man. That's what Jesus said. He said he was going to come in glory. He was going to come in power. Of course, this is why his disciples were baffled when he was crucified and buried. They they expected the Messiah to be a conquering king. Amen? And rightly so. I think they're often ridiculed for that when really no ridicule should be involved. The, 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 the Old Testament clearly taught that the Messiah would be a conquering king. Amen? And he, in fact, is. 
It's just that we don't understand the whole course of events that the Lord has planned in the plan of redemption. Amen. Amen. Of course, now we have a little bit more insight now that the apostles, now that we have the resurrection of Jesus, right, and the teaching of the apostles, to, to give us a very clear understanding of the timeline of events that takes place in the course of, of human history. And, um, and so, if you will, Jesus said he was going to be coming, and he was going to be coming, and he was going to be reigning, and he was going to be ruling. And uh, so this concept of the coming of the Lord was something that was prevalent, uh, not only in the teaching of Jesus, but in the teaching of all the apostles. They all bring it up. Of course, John is the writer of Revelation, right? And Peter uh, mentions the coming of Christ in both of his epistles. First Peter and Second Peter both talk about the coming of the Lord as a key feature in his writing. And, uh, and then again, Paul brings it up in many, many different books. Of course, in 1 Thessalonians and 2 Thessalonians is where we get most of Paul's teaching about the second coming of Christ. He nevertheless mentions it in many of his other books. So, if you will, other apostles write about this as well. It's recorded where they're speaking about it in the book of Acts. It's recorded in the book of Jude. It's recorded in the book of Hebrews. It's, it's all through the New Testament, the second coming of Christ, that is. And so here Paul talks about it specifically. In verse 15, he talks about the coming of the Lord. In verse 16, he begins to give a vivid description of what it looks like and what happens then. As he has expectantly told them, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. His meaning here is plain. This will not be some spiritual appearance or some esoteric revealing in the minds of enlightened people, but rather a powerful inbreaking of the king of heaven into the physical realm of time and space. The Lord himself will descend from heaven, and he will do so with a shout, with the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. Here notice he comes with a shout, or in the Greek, a command. One cannot dismiss the account of Lazarus being raised from the dead or the Lord's words speaking of the resurrection of the dead in John 5:25-29 in regard to this resurrection as his powerful voice does in fact raise those who are in him from the dead. The idea is that when Jesus comes, listen, he's coming with a shout. That's what the Bible says. So what is this about? Why does Paul bring this up? Why is Jesus coming with a shout? I would like to suggest that what's in the background here is him saying to Lazarus, come forth. Because when the Bible speaks about the resurrection of the dead, it speaks about that happening at the command of the Lord. Jesus calls forth the dead with his voice, with a command. He alone has that power. Amen? This is what he said in John chapter 5, verse 25 and following. Truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead shall hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear shall live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Do not marvel at this. For an hour is coming in which all who are in the tomb shall hear his voice. What will they hear? His voice. voice. And what will it cause? 
They shall come forth. Those who did good deeds to a resurrection of life and those who committed the evil deeds to a resurrection of judgment. What is it that raises the dead? The voice of the Son of God. Okay? Interesting that when Paul tells us at the second coming of Christ is going to be a resurrection of dead believers. And when that happens, there is the Lord is going to come with a shout. And if you look at the word shout in the Greek, it, it, it really is the word command. He will come with a command. So, if you will, it's very interesting and vivid imagery that Paul uses to describe the coming of the Lord. The loud command of the Lord, there's an error on your hand out there, will be accompanied by the voice of the archangel and with the trumpet of God. The scene here is one of a general commanding his troops into the heat of battle. The second coming of Christ is often seen in scripture as the triumphant conquering king coming to take what is rightfully his and to destroy those who oppose him. Further, the second coming is in many places accompanied with angels and trumpets, the trumpets being a common feature in ancient Middle Eastern battle scenes. Note here that the Lord is coming with his powerful angels, including the archangel himself. The word archangel is the Greek archagalos, meaning a chief angel. Note the angel's role, I'm sorry, note the angel's role in many end time passages. For example, in Mark 13, and they will see the sign, they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory, and then he will send forth the angels and will gather together his elect from the four winds from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Or how about in Matthew 16:27, Jesus says this. For the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Listen, the second coming of Christ is, is frequently seen accompanied with angels. Okay, You might remember the parables. You remember the parables of the kingdom that Jesus taught in Matthew 13, the parable of the sower? And he's got the four different kinds of soils. And only one kind of soil is the one that grows and bears fruit, right? And uh, uh, later on, he tells a parable about the weeds, right? And then later on, he tells a parable of the dragnet, right? And you notice at the end of the age, in each one of those parables, what happens? The angels come and they harvest out, right? The dragnet, the angels separate the good fish from the bad fish, right? The bad fish get thrown into the fire, right? The good fish get gathered up into the master's uh, uh, treasury. The, the, the parable of the weeds. There's an enemy that sows bad seeds in the field of the Lord. And what happens, right? Well, the angels come and they separate. He says, don't pull up the weeds. Why? Because at the end of the age, the angels will come and separate the good wheat from the tares. Right? And the tares will be gathered up and thrown into the fire. And the good wheat will be gathered into the master's barn. Right? And this kind of imagery in the kingdom, uh, this end of the age is always seen, accompanied, is frequently seen, accompanied with angels. Okay? So then, note the angel's role. Also, in 2 Thessalonians 1.7, when Paul talks about how Christ is going to come and he's going to, 
Give relief, he says, Second Thessalonians 1, 7, to you who are afflicted and to us as well, when the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. You see, when Jesus is going to be revealed from heaven, he's coming with his angels. Here it says, with flaming fire. In other places, with power and great glory. Understand, it's a big deal. The biggest deal. You with me? When Jesus comes again, family, it is going to be the biggest deal. This trumpet, however, is the trumpet of God. And this term gives it the utmost significance, relating it to the most significant trumpets in Scripture. The trumpet in the Bible is usually used for the gathering of God's people for a significant event, feast, battle, or otherwise. Here, Christ's first order of business at his coming is the gathering of his people, together with his powerful angels and a loud trumpet call. Now, something I would point you to is this. When in these verses, Paul is giving us a vivid description of the second coming of Christ. And he says that when he comes, he's going to come with a shout. He's going to come with the voice of the archangel and with a loud trumpet call. I want you to think about how those trumpets appear in Scripture and what happens. Well, Paul says that the dead in Christ will rise first, right? Well, consider 1 Corinthians 15, 50 and following in light of that. He says, now I say to you, I say this, brethren, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, when? At the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. Now, there is a very clear correspondence between 1 Thessalonians 4:15 through 17 and 1 Corinthians 15:50 through 52. Do you see it? What is it? Well, the main theme is what? A resurrection of the dead. Right? In both places, the dead are raised. And these dead who are raised in 1 Corinthians are what? Imperishable. <laughs> now, who is that that's being raised? It's the we. It's it's the we. It's the brethren of verse uh, fifty, right? It's the uh, it's the we of verse fifty one. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In these verses, Paul, Paul is describing in First Corinthians, right? Not only a resurrection of the dead, but also what? A translation of living believers. That's his point, right? We're not going to all sleep, but we shall all be changed. Those who are dead in Christ are going to be what? Raised imperishable. Those who are alive at that time, what? In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, right? Will be changed. Are you with me? So the correspondence between these two verses is very clear. Would you agree? If not, they're speaking of two different resurrections of two different groups of saints. How does that fit in? Well, it doesn't. Right? They're speaking of the same event, the resurrection of the, of the dead in Christ and the translation of living believers. Okay? This is something that Paul has made very clear in both of these places. 
My point is, though, here that Paul calls this trumpet in 1 Thessalonians the trumpet of God. In 1 Corinthians, he calls it the last trumpet. Okay? So here's this thing. You start piecing all these scriptures together that talk about these events, and you get all these little different descriptions of what's happening. Okay? Very important thing. Especially when you look, for example, at a... a a uh, apocalyptic writing, for example, like the book of Revelation, that's filled with trumpets, right? Mm -hmm. And you try to understand what's this trumpet and what's that trumpet and when does this happen and when does that Mm -hmm. happen, right? Mm -hmm. So things like the last trumpet, right, are very important when you start considering a sequence of events, right? Or, if you will, a description like the trumpet of God, okay, is a very significant trumpet. Which trumpet is it? It's the last trumpet. How do you know? Because these two scriptures are talking about the same event. Are you with me? So, sorry if that confused any of you. Matthew 24 also talks about the second coming of Christ, being accompanied with him on the clouds, with his angels, and here with a great trumpet. He says, they will gather together his elect from the four winds, from one end of the sky to the other. Mm-hmm. It's, it's clear to me that that is speaking of the same event. Mm-hmm. Okay? As I pointed out, which also the verse in Mark, chapter 13, verse 26 and 27, uh, speaks of his gathering his elect from the farthest end of the earth to the farthest end of heaven. Notice in the above two passages, key passages on the second coming and resurrection, the accompaniment of both angels and trumpets. Are you with me? Okay. You may not agree, but at least you understand what I'm saying. <laughs> yes, please do. The, all these different passages that, that you keep saying are all the same event, and this might not be the right time to ask it, but um, what is the position that holds that they're not the same event? Mm-hmm. Is there that position? Yeah, that would that, be that would be dispensational yeah. premillennialism. <laughs> Greg's question is, what is the position that these two events, that is Matthew 24, 31, which is also Mark 13, 27, And 1 Corinthians 15, 50 through 54, and 1 Thessalonians 4, 15 through 17, these, we know these are the same event, correct? Mm-hmm. I just pointed that out yeah. mm-hmm. for various reasons. It's very obvious. We know these two are the same event, this one and this one, because this is just a quotation of that. Mm-hmm. If you know anything about the Synoptic Gospels, right? Mm-hmm. Matthew's chief source material is the book of Mark. Okay, which is why these two quotes are almost verbatim. The only thing missing between these two, this one has a trumpet and this one doesn't. Okay, uh, It's just further detail that's added in, in Matthew. What I am saying is that these two events are the same. Okay, He's asking the question, what is the position that says these two events aren't the same? And I'm, I'm answering, that's called dispensational premillennialism. Dispensational premillennialism, which is also called pre 
pre-tribulationism. Sorry. All these terms, I don't want you to be confused by them. I want you to know what they mean. Define dispensationalism. Pre, okay, one sec. Pre-tribulationalism. This is a very popular view of, in evangelical Christianity. If you know what the books left behind are, okay, that is a that is a, uh, a dispensational premillennial view packed into a set of novels. Okay, this is a view held by John MacArthur. It's a view held by David Jeremiah. It's a view held by long held by Dallas Theological Seminary and John Walbert and. And, and many, many, many for the last many decades. Uh, Alvin McLean is another key uh, contributor to this view. Great men of God, great men of God who have a, a tremendous understanding of the scripture hold this position. Okay? So the difference is, if you will, pre-tribulationism and post-tribulationism Post-tribulationism. Sorry. It's not, I'm sorry. I wish it were better. This one's probably better. Okay, so dispensationalism is contrasted. I'm not going to go into great detail here. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to give you an overview and I'm going to move on. Later we'll talk about this in great detail. The other side of this is called historic premillennialism. Okay, and historic premillennialism is post-tribulational. Okay, dispensational premillennialism is pre-tribulation. Okay, this doctrine right here refers to the timing of the rapture in regard to the second coming. Are you with me? So th all this is talking about, the argument between pre-trib and post-trib is when is the church raptured? The rapture. Okay? The pre-tribber sees it before the 70th week of Daniel. Okay? The post-tribber sees it at the second coming. Understand? Yeah. Everybody understand that argument? Mm -hmm. That's what they're arguing about. Okay? So he was asking, what is the opposing viewpoint? I was telling you, it's dispensational premillennialism, which says these two events are separated by seven years. Okay? Mm -hmm. They're separated by these seven years. Mm -hmm. So in the pre-trib position, that happens before the 70th week of Daniel. Then seven years goes by, which is the 70th week of Daniel. And then Christ comes, the second coming happens here. Okay, but the church was earlier raptured seven years prior to that. So the Matthew, the, 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 all the discourse passages are the ones that occur. Uh, so yeah, a pre-tribber reads Matthew 24 and Mark 13:27 as the second coming, and they read these verses as the rapture, and those two are separated by seven years. Did I say that right? Any pre-tribber, did I say that right? Did I represent that right? Yeah? <laughs> I know I did. So, <laughs> the point, no, no, I'm serious. 
this this is what they, the other side of the argument that I have is. It's dispensational premillennialism. What is you ask? What is dispensationalism? Yeah, dispensationalism is a system of uh, biblical interpretation that is largely represented by uh, dispensations of time in which God is progressively revealing the plan of redemption through the course of history in different dispensations of time. And in each dispensation of time, there is a more full revelation of God's plan of redemption. Okay? Did I just say that right? Want to add to that? What dispensationalism is? So with his people differently in each of those dispensations? Uh, well, he deals with them differently only because there's a fuller revelation of his plan of redemption. So it's coming to fruition in greater ways. Uh, and, and so based on that, there is a, a difference in dealing with that. So that's what dispensationalism is. I largely agree with almost everything that dispensationalism teaches. And of course, the key, the key point in, in that is that a dispensationalist takes a um, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. In other words, they believe the Bible means what it says. Amen. <laughs> <laughs> so, of course, this is, uh, this is one of the hard, uh, controversies between dispensationalists and non-dispensationalists. But the, basically, the disp- dispensationalists will always say, we take a historical, grammatical interpretation of the scripture versus, right, people who are non-dispensationalists who, who in certain places take an allegorical interpretation of scripture. That's why, for example, an amillennialist can read Revelation 20 and say, well, a thousand years is just talking about a long period of time. They don't really mean a thousand years. Whereas the dispensationalist says, what do you mean? How many years are in a thousand years? <laughs> right? And of course, of course, you know, so I, I basically would be a dispensationalist if it didn't put me in, in the camp that teaches this. Because every other point of dispensationalism I agree with. I just read a book on dispensationalism where the guy is defining uh, a guy from a master's seminary by the name of Michael Vlack. Uh, and I would highly recommend his book on dispensationalism. You ought to read it. It's a very good read. Um, but he's, he's saying you would be a dispensationalist if you affirm all these points. Well, guess what? I affirm all those points, every single one of them that he writes. I just don't apply it to certain passages of Scripture in the same way that he does. So, <clears throat> if you will, this is why I keep trying to tell you that Premillennialists are premillennialists. Whether you're dispensational or historical, the, the, the body of agreement between those two is very large. It's very vast. There's a lot of unity between these two. They're just arguing over the timing of the rapture. And it's not like that's a minor point. That's something that's very important, right? But it's not something that should cause us uh, any kind of division in the sense, I mean, look, we're all blood-bought saints, Right. Not only that, I mean, you can even be a premillennialist and agree with a with an amillennialist or a postmillennialist. That doesn't make somebody unorthodox in their view of God or in their view of salvation or in their view of some essential doctrine. Amen. Amen. How much more can you agree with a premillennialist who's just arguing with you over some fine points? 
Are you with me? So we need to learn to do that in a spirit of grace and love. Would you agree? Okay. But there's a lot to add up in the equation, isn't there? (laughs) Okay. I'm sorry? The name of the book? Dispensationalism. Yeah, it's a little booklet. You can zip right through it in a couple nights. It's very good, very clear, very concise. Did I answer your question, brother? Yeah. Did I answer your question, brother? Yes. Okay. Okay, moving forward. Where are we here? Okay. The second coming of Christ is accompanied with angels and trumpets. You believe that? Amen. <laughs> okay, good. Okay. Don't some of the dispensationalists believe it's a secret rapture? Yeah, well, that's what... That's what pre-tribulation and rapture is. That, well, but from what we're reading, it's it's loud, it's visible, and it's okay. All right. So without going there, with, without going there, some some people call it a secret rapture. Some dispensationalists don't like that term um, uh, because they're not necessarily saying that. They're just saying that. Um, they're saying that when Christ comes to rapture the church, it will be something that will be um, like a thief. So, you don't know he's coming. You just don't know when he's arriving. Well, you don't know when he's coming. You don't know when he's arriving. But also, the saints that are raptured just suddenly disappear. They're gone. And that's not a visible appearance of Christ in the sky. Am I right about that? Okay? So, so that's what some people mean by secret rapture. So, for example, you've seen the license plate, the, the bumper sticker that says, in case of rapture, this vehicle will be unmanned. Yeah, yeah. Right? Or you've got the left behind idea that, you know, people are walking down the street and suddenly they're a pile of clothes, you know. Or, or you know, or in the movie, I think one of the guys, like, is in the house and he runs in to find his sister and their clothes are laying there on the bed and she's gone, you know. That, that's kind of the idea. The idea is that it, it's, you know, the, the believers are just snatched away. And, for example, I think in the Left Behind series, you can correct me if I'm wrong, but uh, planes crash because pilots are raptured. You know, that kind of an idea. Of course, that, of course we're, we're outside of the text of Scripture here. <laughs> but we're inside of the text of the, the Left Behind series, which is popularizing this view because that's what's implied by what they see as the pre-tribulation rapture. Uh, people are literally just vanish and disappear. And if they're driving, operating vehicles at that time, those vehicles are going to, you know, going to crash. Uh, there's all kinds of implications, if you thought about it long enough, that that, that would bring about. Are you with me? Mm-hmm. Did I answer your question? Yeah. That's what's meant by the secret because rapture. Because they separate the second coming with the rapture so that... And uh huh. I'm, I'm like you. I'm not seeing that separation. So the second coming and the rapture happen at the same time. Yeah. Yeah. So well, so visible. if you want, if you want a good description of that, you can read this book right here. The second coming by John MacArthur. It, it, it will very clearly speak about that. Not only there's several other authors I could tell you about. Thomas Ice is one of them. Alvin McLean, he's another one. Um, John Walvoord. There's another one. These guys are very scholarly. They'll give you they'll give you a defense inside and out for why they believe what they believe. Uh, there's some other pretty popular ones. Uh, what's uh, Dwight Pentecost? 
Things to Come is his book. Okay, is there a couple other popular ones I should mention? Anybody? Feinberg. 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 Is that Charles Feinberg? Mm -hmm. Charles Feinberg, Millennialism. Okay. Okay. Okay, I'm set for the rest of the day. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. That'll keep you reading for a while right there. Okay, so then, top of page 49. Moreover, it should be noted that as many orthodox doctrinal statements testify, the second coming of Christ will be personal, bodily, and visible. These facts are important because up until the second coming, Christ's presence is only spiritual and non-visible. Therefore, in many places, the Bible speaks of the revealing or appearing of Christ as he shall appear personally and in the body. This is most clearly indicated by our text, the Lord himself will descend from heaven. This is another reason why I believe that they are the same event. Okay, Because the event that Paul speaks of here where the church is raptured is also a personal, visible, bodily appearance by the Lord. Okay, so in my mind, that equates it with the second coming, among other things. But uh, so moving forward, Hebrews 9, 27 and 28. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once and after this comes judgment. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, shall appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Now, here is a, a reference in the book of Hebrews where he's talking about Christ what? Appearing. Okay? This is a common New Testament term, that Christ will appear versus what? <laughs> that right now he has not appeared. Amen? Christ is king. Christ is ruling. Christ is at the right hand of God, but he is not what? Visible. So Christ is going to do what? He's going to appear. This is a biblical term. Appear, appearing. Look what it says. 1 Timothy 6, 14 and following. That you keep the commandment without stain or reproach until the appearing of our Lord Jesus Christ, which he will bring about at the proper time. He who is the blessed and only sovereign, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. You see that the second coming of Christ is referred to as his appearing, his revealing. Uh, 2 Timothy 4, Paul says to Timothy, I solemnly charge you in the presence of God and of Christ Jesus, who is to judge the living and the dead, and by his appearing and his kingdom. Right? Mm -hmm. Paul says, I'm charging you, Timothy, that you, you keep this charge in light of the fact that the Lord himself is going to appear and judge you. Right? And so it's spoken of there again as his appearing. Or in Peter, Peter writes in chapter 1, verse 7 of 1 Peter, that the proof of your faith being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. And so Peter refers to it as the revelation of Jesus Christ or the revealing. So we have these terms that refer to the second coming of Christ, the appearing, the revelation, okay? Jesus is going to appear in the sky. All right? This is Paul's point. The Lord himself will descend from heaven. Amen? Amen. <clears throat> Not only will he come personally and bodily, but he will come visibly 
so that his coming is witnessed by the entire world. This coming is said to be with power and great glory as he will be feared and marveled at by both the unbelieving world and those who have eagerly awaited his coming. For example, in Revelation 1.7, it says, Behold, he is coming with the clouds and every eye will see him, even those who pierced him and all the tribes of the earth will mourn over him. Even so, amen. Or Mark six. Mark 14, verse 62. And Jesus said, I am and you shall see the Son of Man sitting at the right hand of the power and coming with the clouds of heaven. This is what Jesus was telling Pilate when he was being condemned. He said, you shall see the Son of Man coming with power on the clouds of heaven. The idea, you shall see. Even those... Jews that were convicting Jesus shall see Christ in all of his glory. Amen? Amen. Matthew twenty four thirty, And then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky and all the tribes of the earth will mourn. Sounds just like Revelation 1, 7, doesn't it? And they will see the Son of Man coming on the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. Okay, listen, when Jesus comes again, all the tribes of the earth will mourn when they see him. Mm-hmm. Matthew sixteen twenty seven. for the Son of Man is going to come in the glory of his Father with his angels and will then recompense every man according to his deeds. Jesus says he's coming in the glory of his Father with his angels. Mark thirteen twenty six. and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds with great power and glory. Then Paul writes this, and the dead in Christ will rise first. Here Christ's first order of business at his coming is the gathering of his people, and this is done through the resurrection of the dead saints and the translation of living saints to meet together in the air. (laughs) It's interesting that Paul points this out in this order. He says that the dead in Christ will rise first and then, right? Here's what Paul was describing in verse 15. The dead in Christ will rise first and not what? Precede we who are alive and remain until the coming of the Lord, right? Note the order of events. The dead in Christ will rise first, then we who are alive and remain will be caught up together with them. But don't miss these very key words and the significance of them. The dead in Christ will rise. You see that? That's something very significant. A lot of times we're looking at the text of 1 Thessalonians 4.16 and we're thinking, rapture! You know? And, and uh, we, we, we miss this very important thing. Listen, the dead in Christ will rise. There is going to be a resurrection of a great throng of people from every tribe and language and nation and people. The church of old. Amen? Amen. The church of all ages. Yeah. Is that going to be visible? Absolutely. How do I know that? Verse 17 says... Then they shall be caught up with them to meet the Lord in the air. 
So the Lord is already in the air, what? Visible. Visible. And the dead in Christ rise first and meet with those who are alive and remain in the air with the Lord. Okay? So uh, I think in this text alone, it's very clearly visible. However, I think there are many texts, both in the Old and New Testament, that make that clear. That is, is that the Lord is not only coming for his saints, he's coming with his saints. So, Sean, if the dead in Christ will rise, mm-hmm. but Jesus said to the, the um, guy on the cross that he would be in paradise with him today, mm-hmm. then, um, so somebody who died after they accepted the Lord, mm-hmm. are they in heaven or are they in the ground? Well, let's use a real-life example, okay? Our dear sister Karen passed away just a couple of short weeks ago. Where is Karen? Is that what you're asking? Okay, somebody, where is Karen? <laughs> the absent from the body is to be present with the Lord. The dead in Christ are every single person who died having faith in Christ prior to his second coming, which goes all the way back to Adam and Eve. Okay? So, of course, I might light some fire controversy here, but I'm saying this includes the church of old who have always been saved by grace through faith in Christ. Okay? It's just that in those different dispensations of time, there was a fuller and fuller revelation of who Christ was. But faithful Israel was trusting in the Messiah, who was personified in their sacrifices, okay? And, and prior to that, um, Abraham, Noah, uh, uh, Abel, right? All had their Abel was a sacrificer. What did he look for in his sacrifice, right? What is it that God did when, when Adam and Eve had a fig leaf and he provided what? He provided a covering for them. Right? And and the idea was this blood sacrifice for the faithful of God's people all the way back to the time of Adam. All those blood sacrifices look forward to what? Right. Look forward to Christ who would be the fulfillment of that blood sacrifice. Amen? Yeah. Which is why when the gospel came, we no longer do what? Blood sacrifices. Why? Because by one offering he has made perfect forever those who are being made holy. You with me? So, okay, wait, there's one right behind you. It just sounded to me like you were saying, if they're already in heaven, how are they getting called up? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Okay, all right. So, yeah, that's just the resurrection of the body, right? Okay. Okay. So, so their, their, their soul, their soul is in the presence of God. At the resurrection, their soul is united to their body, their dead body, and it is transformed. Another way to say this is there's a one-to-one correspondence between your earthly body and your heavenly immortal body. Okay? The Bible says that heavenly, I'm sorry, that earthly mortal body that dies is going to be raised in power and transformed to be like his glorious body. That is Philippians 3.21. Uh, no, it's just a, it's just a, we use the term death, Paul used the term asleep, 
And the reason he did that was he's not wanting to say that Christians die because we have been set free from sin and death. And so, however, there is places in Paul where he says that we die. So it's just this this common idea that believers were asleep rather than abiding in death because they're not dead in the sense of death. They're just dead in the sense that their mortal body has passed away and their soul has gone to be in the presence of the Lord. Is that clear? Sophia? Nothing. Okay. Anybody else? I have time for a couple more questions and then I'm going to knock off. Yes, ma'am. How can you be a pre-tribulationalist if the Lord um, warned you of the events during the 70th week? I can answer that. Okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Mr. MacArthurite, I can answer that. Okay. I, I, I'm not a pre-trib anymore. I'm post-trib. But what John preaches is that during the seven years, the rapture occurs. During the seven years, people will come to Christ and be redeemed. And those are the ones that suffer in the seven years in the tribulation. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, a key feature in dispensational premillennialism is a group of people called tribulation saints. Right. Which are people who get saved after the rapture, get saved during this time. Would that be 144,000? No. That's a whole nother people. So, so, um, there is a very clearly defendable argument for dispensational premillennialists about why Christ warns about signs of his coming even though we get raptured before the tribulation period. Okay? I'm not going into that detail right now. But I will. I will explain that very clearly. Anybody else? Yeah. The the trumpets, the last trumpet, does that, can you... um, apply that to the seven trumpets in Revelations? Do, do they have anything to do with each other when he says the last It trumpet? depends on who you read. Okay. okay. So some would say, yes, the seventh trumpet is the last trumpet because the seventh trumpet unfolds the bowl judgments. And the bowl right. judgments, of course, lead to the end. Um, but, but Christ uh, isn't there for those bowl. Christ isn't on earth in the bowl judgments, right? Christ isn't on earth for the bold judgments. They come, the bold judgments come before Christ returns. Okay, th- this is deep water. Yeah. <laughs> uh, so, so the idea, the idea is like, where is Christ during the sequence of events in Revelation? Yeah. If I answer that right now, I will throw people into realms of confusion okay. I do not want to dig out of. Okay. <laughs> so, however, I am going to address that okay. in detail. Um, when we when we get in between First and Second Thessalonians, I'm going to spend several weeks talking about some things. One of those is going to be the sequence of events in the Book of Revelation. When Thank you. you. Go in depth to the millennium. I'd like to know about Ezekiel's temple when you get to the millennium. <laughs> uh, yeah, I will mention that. And I'll talk about it. But I can already tell you that I I have this thing where I actually believe what the Bible says. The more I read it, the more I'm convinced. So it's kind of hard to read about Ezekiel's temple and then 
and to think that somehow it's some kind of allegory. So, so it's a difficult thing to resolve. Nevertheless, uh, the Bible says what it says and means what it says. Amen. Right? Amen. So. Okay, let's pray. God, our Father, we, we thank you that you have given us such a magnanimous description of end-time events. I pray, God, that these things would not confuse us or discourage us. Lord, that we'd realize that it takes many years of study to, to really begin to understand a lot of these things and that you would give us patience, but also zeal to dig into the word deeper and deeper and to understand. God, I pray that we would, in fact, uh, be a people ready for your return and eagerly awaiting it, Lord. May we know what that means and may we know how to apply that in our daily life. We thank you for the privilege that we have to gather freely in this place and to study your word. We honor you and we praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.